0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you are listening to Index Foundation podcast. Hmm. In
1: 2022, the majority of the artists presented at the Venice Biennale its
2: 59th edition, were women, an occurrence unprecedented throughout the biennial's extensive history. The main exhibition, curated by Italian, New York-based Di Cili Alemani, offered continuous dialogues in time, a specific sensuality and many readings beyond traditional history writing. In this podcast, Anne Klontz and Marty Mannan from INDEX team talk with Cecilia Alemani about the biennial, the need to reconsider history, and the many faces of political and exhibitional language.
0: So we start, uh, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we really wanted to talk with you, Cecilia Alemani, about your edition of the Venice Biennale. Uh, it has been a special edition, maybe because you know we need in another wall after the pandemic and what's going on. It's something that affected you as well on the on the timing and the process behind the the production of the of the Biennale. Uh, At some somehow it was like some extra time as well.
2: Yeah, I mean you know it's uh, the 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 entire process of putting together a show like this is already a sort of. Uh, very complex project and I I had some very unique circumstances on one side was the the pandemic which began literally like five weeks after I was appointed and sort of you know changed the entire way one does an exhibition like that namely I couldn't really travel anymore Um, but then on the other side as you said I was fortunate enough because I did have more time because the exhibition a couple of months after the beginning of the pandemic was postponed uh, because the architecture exhibition was postponed. So in a way, the most precious element when you do an exhibition like that is time, especially in Venice, because nobody has ever time to do anything. (laughs) Um, So in a way, I was fortunate to have that extra time, which I use know to um in a way to meet more artists but also to do more research and sort of deepen certain aspects of the exhibitions that we'll we'll talk about later probably namely the historical capsules
0: yeah in terms of research it's an amazing addition because you we can feel we can see as as visitors as well that the uh incredible amount of research that is behind this project there's there's uh, a lot of uh, timelines crossing during the whole uh, exhibition, uh, but many latitudes as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really wanted the exhibition not to be focusing only on the contemporary, of course, uh, probably the job of a biennial or triennial is to record and sort of take a snapshot of contemporary art in the last. Two, three, five years. Uh, and I think that's totally fine. But I think an exhibition like the Venice Biennale, especially like the Venice Biennale, considering its history, uh, has the responsibility also to look back and sort of zoom out from this idea that is just focused on the here and now, which there is plenty. There are, you know, it's a very, very young exhibition in a sense. Uh, uh, but also, I wanted to make sure that I could. Uh, create dialogues and echoes between generations and movements and uh, even just methodologies that are repeating themselves over and over the years. So uh, that's why while the show, let's say the contemporary part of the show is really, really contemporary, uh, there is also an attention to um, to movements and languages that happen about 60 to 80 to 100 years ego uh, to sort of create a trans-historical show that could also train your you know your 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 eye to look at connections among disparate uh, movements and voices
0: connecting with the transhistorical uh it's interesting also to see this this uh gaps, this uh, jumping from one period to another, this the uh, construction of history that not necessarily follows a, a historical timeline, that is uh, the the narrative one. Uh, you are creating, you have been creating a a, a, a zone for another type of language, uh, also thinking exhibitionally.
2: Yeah, to me it was important that I wanted to bring history back, not necessarily in a an academic way, uh, because I think, you know, to give an example, of course, the show is is very rooted in the surrealist thought, but at the same time, it's not necessarily my job to to look back at that movement in a very academic way, because it's been done by amazing scholars and curators already in the past 10 years. You know, the literature about surrealism has expanded so much in such a... um, such a profound way thinking about you know all the exhibitions about the women of surrealism uh, like fantastic women or like the kind of international take on surrealism with the show at the Met. Uh, so there has been literature already done. Uh, I wanted to kind of piggyback on that and take pieces, bits and pieces from that research, but also mixing it with other uh, movements that. Uh, maybe that kind of process of revision hasn't happened yet or it's happening right now. Just imagine like the idea of futurism. Futurism is a movement that is very well known of course, but is often and always associated with uh, male artists but at the same time also Dada and Bauhaus. So kind of creating constellations of meanings that are not necessarily following a traditional academic or art historical timeline, but creating hints for the viewer to actually look at connections between different movements that were not necessarily related because I don't think necessarily the futurism was that related to surrealism, even though they were happening not, I mean, fairly much in the same time, but to kind of look at threads and echoes between these different uh, tendencies that could actually Tell a different story, different stories. So, so trying to, 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 to kind of challenge this idea that it's just one history of art. Yeah, and
0: it's something that we can feel and see, you know, visiting the exhibition and being there, these this multiple layers or languages. At the same time, uh, there's, a, there's a type of aesthetics that you are uh, presenting there. And you can see a, a, um, something that is connecting everything. So it more than contrasts we see these connections, these possibilities of that dialogue that it that goes from from the surrealist or data to today and uh um, it probably talks about our times like we are also confronting a parallel situation like not knowing what's going to happen with the future.
2: Yeah, I think in a way, um many people have asked me why surrealism now and not just because of my show in general, there is a, certainly a resurgence of that movement. and I think in part, of course, you know, there, there is a job that has been done in the last few years by scholars and academic people, but also, um, and also there is a little bit of, you know, trendiness, if you like, that's all always happens in our, uh, in our culture. But I think the the, the the deepest reason is that if you think about it, we are living in a very similar time. So the surrealism was born in 1924, in France, uh, um, just after the second, the first world war, uh, in a time in which uh, um, in which uh, uh, totalitarian regimes were coming to the fore, and uh, it was a very political movement without being openly politically, uses methodologies of the unconscious, the dreams to talk about very important issues that were the politics, that were, you know, the colonial um, situation, but in a less uh, in your face way. And I think in a way artists today are living or we are all living in a very similar time. Of course, it's a different kind of Political situation, but it's not that different because uh, um, you know the 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 insurgents of very um, right wing movements everywhere in Europe in South America uh, is very scary, of course. uh, And uh, the pandemic, in a way, isolated people. So I think the use of, for instance, of introspection and the unconscious, not as a sort of to run away from the contemporary, but to process the contemporary through a different kind of lens.
0: There's a lot about the unknown, about the impossibility of of writing a future somehow, but there's a a beauty as well with all the exhibition. There's a desire for for a a kind of emotional connection as well with what we see there. So it's not... not, uh, uh, probably connected with what you said, or the political, what's political and what presents itself as political. But this edition, your edition, it's uh, clearly political as well.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I try for the exhibition to be timely without necessarily being pedantic and didactic. Uh, you know, I think it's you can still talk about very urgent issues of identity, gender and race, uh, in an installation that doesn't necessarily scream in your face uh, uh, some or like, uh, you know, agitate the audience with very political manifestos and declarations, you can still do it uh, through beautiful objects and two objects that are sensual and that have a different connection with your body. So um, I think, of course, it is my kind of aesthetic taste, but it's very much also, I must say, what I've seen out there, you know, I've done so many studio visits in these two years, and even the more, let's say, political artists, I've noticed how they are using different tools, you know, it's less documentary, for instance, but it's more, maybe it's more poetry, Uh, it's more imagination, still tackling very urgent issues, but again, using less of the um, declarative sort of uh, language and more of the introspective language. So I, I still, I, I do feel it's sort of a shift in what I've seen around myself. Uh, and so again, I, I do think it's, it's very political, but without necessarily screaming in your
1: face. When we were there as a team visiting the Arsenal, uh, one of the things that really made an impression on me was that, you know, how much material-based works there were. There were ceramics and glass and textiles. I mean, it
2: really came sort of naturally. I I didn't decide that I was going to revisit necessarily what's considered like folk art. Uh, like many people have said, I, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision, to be honest. It just happened to be what I like. Um, and so in a way it turned out to be a lot of tapestries but again it wasn't necessarily there wasn't necessarily a plan uh, i think uh, of course i have never seen necessarily a distinction between high art and uh, uh, folkloric what's being called folkloric or more artisan art like uh, ceramic or tapestry, um, but I think also there is a, so many artists right now using these mediums and ch- trying to sort of refresh and uh, reactualize these mediums. I think someone like Magdalena Dundo and her beautiful vases. I mean, they could both be, you know, in the Greek. Uh, wing of the mat <laughs> and they're actually made today and they don't talk about myths and heroes but they talk about the bodies with its orifices and so but you know they they have a beauty and uh, like a power that, Uh, is well beyond that of craft, Um, or I'm thinking about, you know, the tapestries of someone like um, Ikshan Adams, uh, which, uh, you know, are so incredibly beautiful and labor intensive, and yet they talk about, you know, kind of contemporary apartheid in, in, in Johannesburg, and so they have, they're also embedded with a quite powerful political meaning so again I don't really do much of a distinction in my job and also I think a a bit more personally it might be also a reflection of the fact that very often I cannot actually work with these mediums because my job on the high line requires more sturdy stuff. (laughs) So I really wanted to have lots of paintings and lots of, you know, texture and things that sometimes I can, you know, I miss a lot in my daily job.
0: So what we see is this sensual approach that is inviting, uh, that comes from this, uh, warm artworks that are there waiting for us asking for this dance somehow.
2: You know, I wanted the, the, the exhibition to have a certain temperature and that's certainly not a cold temperature. <laughs> and I think the show revolves around ideas of metamorphosis and transformations, but everything is centered around the body. So uh, in a way, um, I also ended up with typologies of works that and this I didn't choose I just realized when I started doing interviews after the announcement that I missed the most during the pandemic so during the pandemic I've seen most of the art through the mediation of the screen um and that being both digital art or like you know whatever very uh I don't want to say NFTs because I never considered that necessarily an art form but you know um even what I was seeing There was installation or paintings was always through my screen. And so the show turned out to be the opposite of that because it's what I missed the most in the pandemic to be able, you know, to smell the oil paint of a painting, to be able to be immersed in an installation, to be able to walk around a sculpture. So, in a way, there is very little conceptual art or digital art or VR experience that in a way I thought I had plenty uh, during the pandemic and wanted to go back to the importance of being physically present in a present in an exhibition
0: and exhibition happens it's uh, on present time but uh, uh you manage to create these this time capsules, these moments that are bringing us back to a specific uh, temporality, and probably like the, the, like the central one at, at, uh, at Giardini, that it's one of the good examples on the, in the which cradle, how you transform the, the idea of the Venice Biennale into a museographic construction suddenly. And then from here, you relate to other works that are close to it.
2: Yeah, I mean the idea of the capsules, this sort of historical moment was very fundamental in the exhibition. It was uh, a way, in a way, especially at the Arsenale to kind of break also the monotony of the space and to create rooms or environments that could be more intimate and would create a different kind of viewing experience that is not just a wow monumental one but is actually you know there are very little things and I have to pay attention and you know the way you look at things is just very different Uh, and so at the pavilion let's say that the hearth of the of this historical capsule is the witch's cradle which is in this kind of not so nice room normally that is underground and usually you see video projections in it because it's not a great room but I always wanted to turn this room in almost like a jeweler, like a jewel space uh, because it's uh, it's like a this treasure box uh, that is in the pavilion. And so we, you know, working with Forma Fantasma, who is the design team that helped me with the historical capsules, we wanted to sort of turn it into this uh, uh, sort of reflection on how women artists through times and through, I would say, mainly surrealism and futurism and Bauhaus and also the the Harlem Renaissance uh, looked and used their body also to challenge this notion of the centrality of man uh, in in our culture uh, and to kind of poke a finger to that and uh, doing it through irony and through also uh, like actual metamorphosis into plants, into animals, but also again challenging also the stereotypical uh, views of women depicted in, uh, in 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 art history and of course i'm thinking for instance someone like leonor fini who portrays you know uh the the, the boy as the muse not the girl as the muse so uh, in a way again it's a constellation of um, of hints and and and, and uh, you know uh Suggestions for the viewer is nothing that dictates how you're supposed to look at it. I wanted to create this uh, sort of network of references among different artworks, and then when you exit this uh, this this room, you'll encounter works uh, like Sina Quarles or Kerry uh, Apps, that you know sometimes eighty. Uh, plus years after their co- surrealist colleagues, in a way, are using similar methodologies. And, I'm, you know, what's important is that I'm not claiming that one is influencing the other. Uh, I like to think that you could actually read the work of Christina Quarles in a different kind of context, uh, which is, you know, the, the legacy of surrealism.
0: In in this room, there's a yeah, work from uh, Dorothea Tani, Carol Ram, and Leonora Carrington. It's where the the title of of the the edition comes from. Yes,
2: so the exhibition is called The Milk of Dreams, and that's a title I took from a book by Leonora Carrington. Uh, So Leonora Carrington is a British artist that moved to Mexico during the Second World War and basically spent her entire life there. She was, um, I would say, rediscovered just a few years ago although, you know, she was, she died in the early 2010 or something, so she's been active in making paintings and sculptures up to her death, uh, but for some reason, maybe because she was in Mexico, I don't know, but she wasn't necessarily uh, super, super famous, um, and I wanted to include her work, but as I often do um, when I find, when I look for inspirations, not just for titles, but in general, I started reading artist writings, and she's uh, not only an amazing painter, but an Incredible writer who wrote really moving short stories and novels like *The Hearing Trumpet* and *Down Below*. So, uh, and I knew a little bit of this, but I didn't know this other book, which is called *The Milk of Dreams* and bring together stories that she wrote actually directly on the walls of her apartment when she had two kids in the late forties and fifties. Uh, and then at some point collected these stories in a little notebook that was then called the milk of dreams after many years. And these are stories that tell, you know, fabulous uh, um, narrations of creatures that transform into animal and plants and, and machines. And what I asked, what I, appreciate so much not only is that theme of her book kind of fit with my ideas for the show uh but it also convey it was you know she has something it's in a way so poetic and so kind of easy you know she she celebrates this freedom of transformation and you know being diverse and be different uh in in a way that i think the That's why she also used the language of children's book to do that. Uh, And in fact, it's very, very, it's not very much children's book because it's kind of scary, uh, but in a way I loved how she really combined so many of the preoccupations that I was thinking of in a very, also in a very visual way. So that's why I stole the title.
0: And it's something that happens that we can see in the whole exhibition. We can can see the transformation. We can see that the the, Animals, we can see the bodies. We can see the plants appearing every now and then. So there's a sort of rhythm that it's uh, with you as a visitor, and you see like thousands of cats, for example, at the exhibition. And uh, but I think it's interesting also to see the two sides, like from in Giardini and Arsenale, That structurally they are completely different. Like while uh, Giardini we have this herd and then uh, something around it with many in and outs. Uh, Arsenale is uh, uh it's a line
2: yeah i mean the the you know the two spaces are very different and in a way the use of these historical capsules has been kind of fundamental in designing the space of course that the pavilion you don't really design much uh, you just decide the circulation but uh it's not it's not an easy building because it's been modified so much throughout the year that there is not one path so uh, i try to bring it back to you know a clean original version because it's in the past has been transformed so, so often. Um, but it is our own version of a white cube. Uh, and while the Arsenal is this gorgeous space, which you have to modify because you know you, it's a historical building so you cannot hang anything on the wall. So got, you have to bring in an architecture. And so to me, the main challenge there was to kind of break this sense of linearity that is so, killing sometimes in some shows you know you just don't see you never see the end and <laughs> um, and so I tried to create this al- like an alternation between you know, bigger, more monumental moment. And then these kind of rooms of compressions or of, um, you know, concentration that were these two capsules in the Arsenale. Uh, And then also use the architecture to kind of try to break this thing that you see everything in one, so to, to, you know, to make the, the, the viewer turn left and right. and. Uh, you know, it's nothing new, um, but it is it is a very challenging space. Um, and we try to, to keep the architecture as minimal as possible. You know, it was, in the end, it was just sheet rocks. <laughs> but it's, uh, um, it is a challenging space to deal with.
0: But in this space, you are also playing with sizes and with uh, some monumentality as well. So we go from the small detail to drawing to the big sculptures. And in this, at uh, the middle, for example, of this, of this, uh, walk. Uh, you encounter uh, Teresa Solar with this similar big sculptures. We had an exhibition at Index with Teresa a few years ago. and she was like maximizing the 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 work, like occupying more than the space. Also with this this uh, same uh, multiple layers of information, the the personal, the the mystical, almost the historical, and uh, it's also interesting to see here that there's something on like the size-wide, like some big objects that are like talking about something really intimate and small somehow.
2: Yeah, there are throughout the, the arsenal, there are a few, let's say larger or more monumental installation. I think of Teresa, but also uh, San, uh, Sandra Muginga or Delcy Morelos uh, that really helped me, again, creating these al- alternance of space and experiences, uh, but at the same time, trying to not be necessarily bombastic or spectacular. So, I think Delcy Morelos is a very good example of something that is gigantic and yet is very intimate because it requires your body to be present and it requires you to smell. And, you know, it's it's a multi sensorial installation, um, but that really pushes you to be close to the earth and close to this uh, gigantic installation made of soil. So, uh, I think it helps. Uh, the design of the shop, without necessarily being too much in your face.
0: And also in this contrast as well, like that is, that it's, it's it's really personal somehow, as you see something, you feel something with your body or you can, and it can be with this type of work, but also with Dita Marakatlaba in the mm-hmm. same type of, of mood.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's, you know, I, you know, I also, to be honest, you know, it's not that I dictated necessarily what I wanted in the show. I, you know, with Britta, of course, Uh, her, you know, her uh, embroideries require different kind of time and a different kind of, uh, of gaze. Uh, But, um, you know, it's, I think you can see, so having more time also helped me building a show around the proposals that I got. I didn't allow, I didn't allot a space for HRTs it kind of was the opposite. So as soon as I got a proposal, then I would build a space around it like a giant puzzle or a giant tangram. So that made the show less rigorous, meaning that it's not that everybody got the same space as it often happens, but it was really built around 80% of the contemporary uh, artists who had different needs. And so it was really like a, like a puzzle game. So I was able to accommodate larger pieces, but also make sure that the small ones would not get lost.
0: And it's probably because the, the language you're using is the artworks. So you are talking through the work of the artist. So then it's important to, to present them on, a, on, a, on the right condition somehow.
1: Sure
2: i mean you know you you try your best <laughs> um, there are lots of challenges but um again the spa- you you ha- the space is not an issue because there's is so much space in venice so at, to me the issue is not it's for the space not to dictate your choice it's the other way around to build a space that could accommodate very different experiences from you know the monumental brick house at the, by Simone lee Two very intimate, uh, you know, uh, Ibrahim el Salai's drawings that are very that require different kind of uh, of looking. Uh,
1: another question uh, that I, I wanted to ask actually from reading uh, in your in an introduction text to the Biennale is that uh, you noted that for the first time in its 127 year history the Biennale will include a majority of women and gender non-conforming artists. So. I think that this is kind of an interesting reflection of the times and of course it opens up to this larger question of why hasn't this uh, been been uh, manifested sooner in terms of the Biennale?
2: To me it was very shocking actually to learn and I you know I really really am not obsessed with numbers but it was still quite shocking to learn how so many progressive or so called progressive exhibitions had a very, very low number of um, women artists uh, participating in it. And again, it's not that one means the other, but I think it's. Um, I was very, very surprised. Um, but. Um, So it's hard for me to say why Uh, I also, you know, it's, I, there's nothing I can do about (laughs) those shows. They were very good shows anyway. Uh, But I think to me as a curator, I've always worked with lots of uh, women artists and it felt very natural. And I, I did not give myself any, you know, target. Um, I didn't say, oh, I want to get to that point when I wanted to invite a man, I invited a man. And so there are men in the show, when it came to the historical capsule there, it's a different story. That I wanted to be exclusively focusing on on women artists because I think historically they have been the ones that have been excluded the most. And so I didn't need to to do a show about surrealism by including Dali or Magritte, because everybody, um, you know, knows them. So I wanted to, to to really focus on the voices that have been excluded by that discourse, uh, and then in the sort of contemporary section again, when I wanted to invite a man, I invited a man. There was no, uh, no 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 issue whatsoever. But it is you know it is still a very a very sexist world that we live in. I mean, I don't have any other way of saying that. So sometimes calling these things out, although I'm not necessarily coming from the call-out culture is, uh, I'd rather show you that you can do a good show with 80% women and nothing happens, so.
0: Connecting to it, I remember like uh, talking with uh, Rosa Martínez and uh, and Maria de Corral about when they were like the first female uh, woman curators and how difficult it was for them, that like the type of reception from from a conservative side saying, not almost not accepting this fact that they were creating the the Biennale.
2: You know, reception of my show has been generally positive, but I also, for the many people that said, you know, that like there was a financial time review of my show that literally said that I sacrificed quality because I included lots of women artists, like sacrificing quality because there are women art, like on paper printed, I always, I I have it framed. you know, I sat to me, the reception is not that, uh, you know, the reception is what this show does to the young kids that go see the show. And you know, the, the, the 15, 16, 17 years old that go and get inspired because they see themselves recognized in this show. Of course, I'm I'm flattered if there is a nice review in the New York Times. But to be honest, uh, it doesn't hurt me if somebody says, oh, this is constantly all like they have said many times is discriminatory against men, um, which is also like only in Italy, you can say that. Or maybe in Spain, I don't know, <laughs> or maybe in France, uh, but it's uh, you know it makes me smile and it, it's fine. I'm I'm you know it's uh, again the, like the real question is that if you ask me what, what will come next, uh, you know how do you continue something like that. So, <laughs> but that's not my job anymore. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's it's super interesting to see these processes on on also the long term because what what happens with Venice is that you do this uh, exhibition and this exhibition will stay forever so it's something that we go back so we go back to previous editions uh, so and we remember these moments i can imagine that it can be like uh stressful also to think on on this type of exhibition it's not just exhibition it's something that remains longer
2: well you know i think that's uh the real question you know what what is the legacy and it's early to say so we'll see in 20 years
0: <laughs> before like the the pandemic was declared a pandemic you were in Sweden doing research
2: yeah I was in Sweden just for a day I think because then I had to cut my my trip short um because uh yeah Trump was already closing the border so um it was it was really nice I had fond memories I hope I'll come back one day um but yes it, it's uh, you know I met Britta actually in, in Sweden and at the Moderna Museet, so it was great
0: and then I, I would like to connect with with uh, the Biennale in 2013, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when, uh, when uh, an edition that you know well, the, it's when uh, Hilma Afklint was presented there. It's a name that could be also part of your, your universe somehow.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a way, yes, but I also... I try to focus on less uh, recognized names because Hilmar of Kim now is like the like the star of the universe, you know. Like there after the show, the Guggenheim. I mean, she she's an excellent artist, but I don't think necessarily I needed to. Give space again in the same institution, you know, to to her work, and I rather to focus on, uh, you know, someone like Georgiana Otton, who worked in the same time in the same spirit, but is much less well known, and uh, and there was still this sort of uh, excitement of discovery, which I don't think is there anymore for Ilma af
0: But it's also something interesting. Think about the yeah, this. Uh urgent need to to include all these names in uh, in history, still there. So it can be like 100 years, but we still need to to fight to to break some of the constructions that have been defined in history.
2: History repeats itself. So our history is a history of exclusion in all kinds, not just art history. So, um, but I think in a way, um, you know, I speak more on this side of the ocean where I work in America, there is... I see that happening somehow also in Europe somewhere this uh, very strong um movement to to revisit and reread and rewrite and reconsider but I think you know in Italy the sad thing is that in Italy it gets tagged immediately like cancel culture and you're like uh, nobody wants to cancel anyone you know it's just about rereading what happened and and to me you know what, what I always find surprising is that as a Our professional, I just think it's a very exciting process. You know, it shows us that history is not this monolithic thing, but we can learn still a lot from history. And I'm not intimidated by that. I think it's just a very, very exciting exercise for all of us. You know, first of all, we have something to learn. And then it's about, you know, just consider history as an active, a material that sometimes uh, generates amazing male artists and other times he forgets about great female artists. And, and, you know, it's not that by bringing to the fore women artists, something is happening to the many male artists in our museum. So um I think it it is very much, you know, and as often happens in America, it's extreme, you know, it is very much black and white. And now that's the only thing that we doing. Is that exercise, but I think it really trains your muscles to, to be less, uh, you know, to consider art history less of a fixed um, thing and more like a, really like a magma that, uh, like a fluid material that really allows you to to shape and to and to you know to create history in different ways.
0: Yeah, continuing with this, this line and uh, the the rediscovery and the observing with new eyes, I was uh, fascinated by the fact that you have found Josefa Tolrà, a medium mm-hmm. from Spain. No one knows about her internationally. How it how how it was.
2: I had a very excellent researcher, his name is Stefano Mudo, and he's someone that is is a PhD, well now is not a candidate, a PhD student at UAV, which is one of the two main universities in Venice, and he helped me a lot, you know, it was very good because I had, my ideas were very clear on what I wanted. Uh, about the capsules, uh, I knew the theme, I knew the period, I knew what I wanted, but sometimes I didn't necessarily have the artist. And he did a, an amazing research and was really, really passionate. And so he found very many of these uh, artworks that you see in the show, including Josefa Stora, who I didn't know before, uh, but I knew I was interested in artists using their bodies to communicate and also artists and not just artists. And so it was a great inclusion and I was very happy to to have her in the show.
0: And, and we can see some of these of uh, examples like this rediscovering this, these voices that have been there always but we, with this non uh, you know, first character figure and uh, and there's a, a like a polyatric construction with the whole uh, biennial that gives voice uh, to many and it's something semi generous
2: yeah I mean for me you know as a not as a curator but as just as an art lover if I go to an exhibition I want to learn something new um and I I know it sounds cheesy and and silly but that's what motivates me to go to shows Uh, I don't want to see always the same otherwise that's uh, you know it's not fun so in a way the research and the discovery side um is extremely important to me for for visitors also because in a way I think a lot of people, you know, the, the Biennale is, is visited by a very wide public. It's not just the art lovers. And so lots of people don't care about contemporary art. So the idea that maybe you can actually open a door to someone that doesn't care at all about Anto Suta or Rosemary Choco, but uh, they actually are very interested in uh, spiritualism or Medianistic um, art. I think it's uh, it's a way also of stimulate the intellect of uh, not necessarily contemporary um art lovers um and uh, you know some people might say why do you look so much to the bad to the to the past but I think again it's not either or in fact the show is uh, both and they're both included and uh, they I think they both benefit from each other because some of these historical works seem so incredibly contemporary um, in this context. And that I think is the power of art because it, the, the art, like power of objects that can speak to different times, can speak to different audiences and can assume and, and 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 have different values and different different meaning depending on the times they get exhibited. so.
0: And do you think that that with your edition uh, uh, the Venice Biennale is taking uh, the role of the museum on, on going back to history and explaining today from, from this content that it's not just from the last two years, but...
2: Uh... I mean, to me it's less a museum and it's more, you know, the Venice Biennale has been around for 127 years. So it's actually been there for longer than lots of museums in Italy. Um, and in a way, It's been able to tell the story not just of Italian and international art, but also of our society. And of course, if you think of the pavilions and the, the, you know, this like little uh, geography of um, powerful, you know, countries uh, in dialogue with each other, I think that the Biennale goes well beyond just what's contemporary. And so, it is its job also to. To think about history and to, and to do this exercise. So, I don't necessarily connect it to the idea that it's a museum. I think a biennial can do it. And of course, the Venice Biennale, out of all biennials in the world, has the weight of history on its shoulders um, and the weight of histories, because there are so many histories that are told. Um, so, I, and you know, one of the very important elements of the Venice Biennale is its archive. There is this incredible archive. Uh, out of which we did a show a couple of years ago in 2020, which was called The Disquieted Muses. And it was sort of a reading of the history of the Venice Biennale through the lens of uh, crisis and, 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 uh, and wars and you know transformations of society. So, uh, in a way, to reinterrogate the history through the lens of the Biennale, I think it's it's always been in, in the biennial's DNA. Uh, and uh, you know, I think often to this exhibition that took place in 1948. Um, which was the first biennial after the Second World War, it was an extremely important biennial because on one side they reopened to the contemporary, to the many tendencies that were actually um, you know to to what was new but at the same time you also looked back to all those languages and movements that were censored during the 20 years of fascist uh, biennial and I think the Venice Biennale has always had this very strong relationship with history. It just depends on, you know, which edition and which time that we were talking about. The, the, the reason why the Venice Biennale was created back in 1980 1893 was that the mayor of the time, Ricardo Silvatico wanted to kind of Break this image that Venice was just this historical beautiful place where you would go to museums and see Canaletto and see uh, Titian and see the churches but wanted to bring the contemporary to Venice and that's why he copied the sort of model of international expositions of the 18th the 19th century and brought it to Venice with this idea of the pavilions um, and so I think there it's very much in, into the Biennale, into the Biennale's DNA to mix this sort of contradiction too also of the, the city of Venice now you know it's a city that uh, lives out of its past uh, and it's very hard to move to the future because the future is just the picture of the future in Venice is tourism but at the same time without tourism it's not a city because it's a city that cannot sustain itself. So I think it's accepting this contradiction and just absorbing them into your thinking.
0: You are listening to Index Foundation Podcast.